Ain't technology grand. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Apparently, you're not doing very well. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? All right, my name's Carlton. Uh, I am, uh, I go to church here. Um, so uh, just to kind of give you a brief introduction because it's really not important who I am. It's important about getting to the text that we're studying. Uh, I was in youth ministry for over 20 years. Some of you were actually former youth of mine. Bless your heart. Um, and then uh, I planted a church in Cleveland, Georgia uh, called Oikos, not the yogurt. But uh, that was about a six-year process. Gabe and I became really good friends during this time. And uh, we modeled our churches very similar. Uh, so we would bounce off of each other. And then when we shut down at Waycoast in 16, 2016 was a year. Father passed away. A whole bunch of stuff happened. We shut it down. We, we couldn't find a place to go. I cannot go to a traditional church. I would explode. So we came here. Literally, the first time we came here, we met in a room over there at 530 at night on Sunday night. I have three young boys at that time, and I was scared to death that they're going to cause a ruckus. When we walked in, my wife looks at me and goes, oh my gosh, we're the senior adult section. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um, fell in love with the church and been coming here two and a half years ever since. Love it here. Uh, love the opportunity to get to serve you guys, uh, to give you some of the insight, not wisdom, but the insight that I've had over 52 years. 52? Thanks, AJ. You're a big guy. Oh, 51. Thank you, dear. Appreciate that. Uh, when you get to my age, you just forget a lot of stuff. So um, let me kind of jump in where we're at. We're in a series dealing with two books at one time. Anybody want to venture a guess to what they are? Yes, it's like a classroom setting. Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, good. I'm glad you're excited about that. We are jumping into Ezra chapter 5 and 6. So if you want to get your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 5 and 6, and we will cover Ezra chapter 5 and 6. So there'll be a lot of reading that goes involved with this and some information transfer, um, so it'll kind of work out. Let me kind of introduce it this way. Here's where we've been so far, okay? Set this up that literally the key to the focus of the book of Ezra is this. Gabe talked about this the first time we got together. Is the restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, which they are called to obey. <laughs> Sounds like a seminary class, doesn't it? The book, the key, the focus of the book is the restoration of God's people. They were in exile. Of God's covenant people. God made a covenant with them. Those of you that know anything about covenants, does anybody know anything about covenants? Raise your hand if you've been married or are. Marriage is the only thing that we have that is a covenant today that looks anywhere close to. It is the greater reaching out to the lesser and extending relationship to that. It is God extending relationship to mankind or to the nation of Israel. The greater extending relationship saying, I will cover what you cannot cover. I will do what you cannot do. It's exactly what God did with the nation of Israel. Can they be holy? No. Can you be holy? Man, you're a dead audience today. Maybe if I take... No, never mind. Uh, so, we cannot be holy in and of ourselves. We are jacked up from the very core of our being. When we're born into this world, we are sinful. Nothing that we can do ourselves can make us righteous in God's sight. Covenant is God looking down to mankind going, you can't do this, I will. What's the perfect picture of that? We're in a Christian church. What's the perfect picture of that? 
Jesus, thank you very much. Excitement, awesome. So, God's covenant people, according to his word, what he's spoken, that they are called to obey. Uh, when Allison and I got married, I, I wanted to make sure the pastor would make her say and obey. <laughs> My wife is the most headstrong person I know. And she was like, I am not saying obey. If he makes it, I'm not going to say obey. I'm not going to say obey. I'm not going to say obey. And I'm like, Donna, you got to make her say obey. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And then the jerk got sick the day before the wedding and took Tavis D the day of the wedding and gave us, we, I don't even know what our, our nuptials were. I have no clue. Like literally he was saying something out of left field. We got finished and I looked at I said, did you say obey? She went, no. I went, daggone it. So. The word obey is a foreign word to us. It means to do what someone tells us, right? Parents, our kids, it's foreign, right? You will do this. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. Okay, so to do what God tells us. This is the key for this book. So if we read it in light of this sentence, it helps us to understand a lot of what's going on throughout the book that we may not get to or understand. So what's happened is the nation has been sent into exile as punishment for their disobedience to God. And in that, he gave them a promise and said, after 70 years, I'm going to do something. I'm going to rise up and we're going to take care of business, okay? So from that, 70 years have passed. God begins to set in motion the redemption of his people. He stirs up the heart of the king and sends the people back. The king sends the people back to rebuild the temple. But... As humans do, they got there, they started off pretty good, but then troubles arose and they kind of stopped and failed and, and pretty much did what most of us do when hard times come, we just quit. Okay, so that's where we are right now. Jumping into 5 and 6, we're going to read a large part of it. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Starting out in verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. Ezra says this, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the sons of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. And if you've got a pen or a highlighter, highlight this or underline this. Please. Who was over them? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehazadak, rose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, and, uh, stupid page, and Sheth, that guy, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build the house and to finish the structure? What does this look like? Sixteen years before, as soon as they started building, what did the people around them begin to do? Put up roadblocks. It's beginning again. They also ask this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? <laughs> How many of you have got a younger brother? I'm going to tell mama. Exactly what's happening here. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until a report should be reached Darius, and then the answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shegai and his associates and the governors who were in the province beyond the river sent to Darius the king. They sent a report in which the written as follows. To Darius, king of all peace, be, to, be, known, be it known to the king that when they went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. Interesting they said that. What did they just say? 
These are guys who don't believe, but they said what? To the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in its walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked the elders and spoke to, us, spoke to them thus, Who gave you such a decree to build this house, to finish the structure? We also asked them the names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. This is the Jews speaking. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which uh, a great king, of Israel, uh, great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. However, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus, the king, made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the vessels in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem and brought to the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one of those named Sheshabar, who, made, who was made the governor. And then he said to them, Take these vessels, go put them in that temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be built on its site. So, this is their report back to him. We've been given a decree. We are simply following up on the decree that was given. They send this into Darius, who's the king at the time. Now, their expectation is he's going to freak out. He's going to send armed guards. They're going to tell him to shut it down, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting what God had decided. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Darius made a decree. And a search was made in Babylon in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In Ekevatath, the city of the province of Media, the scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of the king of Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let that house be rebuilt. And a place where sacrifices were offered, let its foundations be retained. Its heights shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, and is in Jerusalem, be brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem. Each to its place, you shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tataniah, governor of the province beyond the river, Sheth Bozaniah, and your associates and the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue. The tribute of the providence beyond the river. And whatever is needed... Bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wine or wheat, salt, wine or oil, as the priest of Jerusalem require. Let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it. They didn't play. 
mess with this, I'm going to own you, okay? And, may the God, and his house be made a dunghill. <laughs> may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter, alter this or destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I dare you to make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. So, let me give you a summation from there. They finish. As they finish building the house, they begin setting up the sacrificial systems as it's supposed to be done. They celebrate Passover. They do all the things they were supposed to do from the beginning that God had told them that they are to do. And so as they go through this, literally as it's declared, as the temple is finished and dedicated and the Passover is celebrated, at the very end of 6, it says this, beginning in verse 22. As they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So, long passage, a lot of stuff going on there. Let me kind of introduce it by saying this. How many of you are, would define yourself as being... Um, well, for lack of a better term, kind of um, goofy. Okay, goofy's a good thing. I'm goofy. Uh, those of you that are goofy, and it generally kind of follows this trait, how many of you are absent-minded? Okay, toes are raise your hand. Thank you, okay. Uh, have you ever just kind of been in, like, walk through situations or circumstances? The other day I'm driving home. Uh, and we live, in, we live in Cleveland, so we live in White County, and I'm, I'm driving kind of up 129, and all of a sudden, as I'm driving up, it hit me, there are mountains. In Cleveland, I mean, like, literally, just all of a sudden, I was like, holy cow, it is beautiful up here. It's not that I've never noticed it, but sometimes you don't notice something, you know what I mean? Could be a girl or a guy that you've been around for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, you just kind of, hey, notice them, Right? It could be a situation where you just all of a sudden notice what's going on around you. Uh, one of the things that I do besides uh, the job that I have is I also I, I teach self-defense. One of the key components of self-defense is self-awareness. Um, there is no amount of self-defense anyone can teach you. If you're not aware of what's going on around you, you're in trouble. And I'll just kind of give you for instance, how many of you constantly walk around with earbuds in? You're a victim. What do you mean? I'm a victim. Well, here's the deal. Criminals look for people that are distracted. If you're distracted, you are easy to approach from a position or place that you're not paying attention to, and it's easier for them to assault you and take what they want. How many of you are constantly doing this on your phones walking? Okay, have you not seen YouTube videos? People walking into lakes, poles, out into traffic. Again, if you're not aware of your surroundings, if you're complacent in that, you may miss something or something may not miss you. And a lot of times what happens in life is that's what happens. We get going in life and things just are going and going and going and we get complacent to the things that are around us. We don't see what's going on around us. And all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, I didn't notice that before. And it's been right in front of you the whole time. Here's what I see that's happening here. You're going to... It's going to take a little bit of imagination. So I want you to think about this. 16 years have passed since they stopped working on the temple. 
Grass has grown up. Weeds have kind of grown up in the cracks. You know, what used to be kind of a, the foundation being set, it just doesn't look as well as it did. And people have just kind of started working and then they just kind of got a whole lot of stuff that went along and then they just kind of walked away from it and said, nah, we'll get back to it. So they started building their own homes and they started building their own lives. And in that, they forgot what God called them to do. Build my house. So the people went back and built their own houses and got busy in life. Those of us that are over the age of, of 40 understand this. We get going in life. Kids, job, uh, you know, things are going on in life. We get going, we get our head down, and we're just trucking and moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. And all of a sudden, our little babies aren't little babies anymore. They're teenagers. They're taller than us. Of course, for me, it's not that really big of a deal. But, you know, my, Elliot, my son, goes, hey, I'm taller than you. I'm like, congratulations. It's not that hard to grow taller than me. Um, but we start noticing these things. The other day, um, at bedtime, all of our boys, I mean, Elliot, AJ, Darius, Tozer, uh, they get ready for bed, and I kind of get out of the way. Dads can get in the way. So I kind of get out of the way and let them do their thing, and, and they come up. And this is what's cool about my kids. My, Elliot's 16, and he still hugs me. And I don't think you guys understand that. He's a guy. Dudes don't hug other dudes, right? Right, guys? Help me out. Okay. I mean, we'll give the bump. You know, I'm not gay. That kind of mentality. But we, we'll do that, but we don't actually, like, your dad, you're like, hey, what's up, dad? What's up, pops? What's up? Yo. We don't hug our dad. He still hugs me. That's cool. My son AJ comes up and says, I love you, dad. I'm like, I love that. And then Tozer's just like. <laughs> but the thing about it is, as my, as my guys are getting ready for bed, I'm sitting there, and I just noticed all of a sudden, in 10 years, this is going to be completely different. They're not going to be here. Woo! I'm just kidding. They're not going to be here. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have the hugs. I'm not going to have the high fives. I'm not going to have the love. It just became apparent. Complacency is what happens in our lives. And this is what's happened here. The people have become complacent. We had this very first part of the, the chapter 5. said there's two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah, when they prophesied, they smoked the nation of Israel. They lit them up. Zechariah has these, you know, kind of woo prophecies, but Haggai was like, I will beat you. Like that kind of mentality. You ever those prophets that just come out and yell at you? I just imagine Haggai was this kind of guy. And Haggai, in Haggai, it's one of the books, uh, has these three things that he says to the nation of Israel. These three overarching prophecies. And he basically comes down on me, flat out says, the first thing he says is I, he wants to rouse the people from the stupor that seems to have gripped them the passing years. This stupor, what does the word stupor mean? What does it sound like? Say it. Say it. Stupid. Okay, stupid stupor. A stupor is this kind of fog. You're just going about your day, doing things. It's complacency. It's, I'm not seeing that God's at work around me. Henry Blackaby had this um, study years ago. And the first thing that it said in this was, look for where God is at work and join him. Most of us won't tell God, hey, I'm going to do this, come and join me. No, look for where God is at work and join him. And that's exactly what the people forgot to do. They forgot to see where God was at work. They just kind of went about their day. And, and Haggai's like, y'all got to come out of this. 
your stupor, you built your houses. Your houses look great. You got panel walls. That's awesome. Yeah, the house of God's a flapjacking foundation. You're building your life and God's going, yo, cuz, what's up with my house? These are all paraphrases. Okay, so the idea here is Haggai gets on them that, look, you've built your lives, you've built your house, but you've forgotten what God has said to you. Rebuild mine. The second part of that is as he gets on them about that stupor, he tells them really quite simply, you need to come back to a right sense of priority. You need to come back to a right sense of priority. Your priorities have been on yourself. You need to take them off yourself and put them on the God who looks over you. Does this sound like us? Okay, just making sure. Next, in the last one, he warns the people that they are losing out as long as God's house and his work remain neglected. They are losing out. God's not up in heaven going, no, he's not doing that. The people that are losing out on the favor and the presence and the power and the movement are the people of Israel because they're not being obedient. They are losing out on God's presence as long as his house and work remain unfinished. I'll just read this. Haggai chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 says this. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much, bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with it. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages, earned wages to put into bags that have holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. God is saying to the people, where is all this concentration and effort upon your own concerns got you in this end? When I was 21 years of age, it took God rocking my world for me to understand for 21 years I'd lived with me as the sole beneficiary, the sole focus. And it took God smacking me upside the head, which it does with a lot of guys, right? Because we're what? Thank you, okay? Hard-headed, stupid, if you want to call it that way. Don't say that, boys. Uh, so the mentality of it is, at 21, God got a hold of me, slapped me around a little bit and said, you've lived your life for 21 years with you being the sole focus of it. How has that worked for you? Same way here. Consider your ways. You've been focused on yourself. What's it gotten you? Not what you expected. Because once again, you've ignored me and focused on you. So with these three main concerns with what Haggai prophesies, get out of your stupor. Get back to a right sense of priorities. Stop disobeying, if you want to kind of break it down to a simpler form. Stop disobeying. Do what you've been commanded to do. From that, we get all the things that happen here. So beginning, really, in verse 1 with these prophets, they begin to prophesy to the nation. I think this is cool because a lot of times we forget this, that in this, with verse chapter, two, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, you see that these guys who were the prophets who were supposed to be up there going blah, 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 they're the ones who jump in and do what? They begin the work. They're not just mouthpieces. 
They're being obedient to what God's called the nation to do. But it says this at the very beginning. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the sons of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. Here's that part. Who was what? Over them. Do not miss this, sports fans. Even in their disobedience, even in our disobedience, God is still what? Over us. He still watches over us. He's still desiring connected relationship with each one of us as he did with the people of Israel at this time. If you want to call it a point or if you want to call it a thought process, this is the thought process. Remember, no matter what you're dealing with, God is still with you. What does scripture say? I will never what? Leave you nor forsake you. I am with you. So even in their disobedience, God still had an eye out for the nation in the same sense that he has an eye out for you and for me. Even in our stupor, even in our discombobulation, he is there. And from that, as that moves forward, we see as they begin the work of God, as they begin to be obedient, what happens? Immediately, problems arise. Um, when you are obedient to God, do not think that everything is going to be roses, flowers, and candy, okay? It's not. When you are obedient to God, you can guarantee you're going to deal with issues and problems. I'll give you for instance. Alice and I, in youth ministry, God's calling us to do something different. We decided to go into uh, to be church planners. Um, it took me two and a half years to, to fight through that. I did not want to be a church planner because I, 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 I didn't want to fail. I was scared to death. How are we going to be financially okay? And what's it going to look like for our kids? Okay? So as a man, I had fear. I was scared. So God fought with me, and I, God and I fought for two years, which is funny. When you fight God, what happens? You lose. Okay, so mentality of it is, is through this process... My fear of failure, God goes, when do you learn your greatest lessons? When you succeed or when you fail? Fail. Okay, so God said, that's answered. Okay, okay, okay. Financially, we went through a whole series of time where we saved, we saved, we saved. We had a lot of money in the bank, and so we stepped out. The fear of the financial was gone. Within the first two flapjacking months of us stepping out, we had to buy a new vehicle. We had to buy a new water heater. I mean, just a whole, like all of the money we'd saved up in about two months, gone. And I'm sitting here going, for real? God, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Again, I will say this to you. I will confess my sin to you. Me and God had it out. Okay, I had it out with God. <laughs> But as a patient, loving father, I imagine God going, hmm, that's terrible. And that's jacked up. That's messed up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ooh, all that money? Really? Wow. Did you think your bank account was going to get you through this? Yeah? Hmm, okay. Uh, did you think that uh, you weren't going to experience problems when you stepped out in faith? Yeah? 
Are you stupid? Yeah. <laughs> when you're obedient, problems come. You've got to understand problems are going to come when you're being obedient to God and doing what God says. Here's the thing. They start it, and immediately here comes the governors from the area going, Ooh, the Jews are doing it again. Are we going to tell? And kind of that mentality. So now they have a choice. Continue to be obedient or be disobedient like they did before 16 years earlier. What did they do? They pressed on. Even in the face of adversity, we need to press on. We need to move forward. We need to continue to be obedient, and that's exactly what they did. And what's amazing in this whole process is as these problems are occurring, who's in the background moving, motivating, and positioning? God. You don't think God's up in heaven going, hmm, how are we going to fix this? Hmm. Well, if I move this piece here and I move this piece here, no. The plant, he's omniscient, which means he knows what? Everything. Every possible outcome, every possible situation. There's not going to be one day where God is up there having a ham sandwich going, I did not know that. He knows everything, okay? If he's omniscient, knowing everything, and he's omnipotent, he's all power to make those things take place so that his will, his mission, and his presence are pressed forward, do you think that he's not at work behind the scenes for the people of Israel? Yes. Send this letter to the king, and the king says, yeah, let me go check it out. Let me go see if there's something here. There's some... So he goes back, he finds the decree that was made before by Cyrus. Darius goes, there's a decree made, and here's the way it's going to work. Y'all going to do what they say, and y'all going to do what I say. The decree was made by an earlier king, and it's written down. It's not hearsay, it's written down. He wrote it down. So what we're going to do is we're going to honor that. And the reason... This is crazy. The reason Darius wants to honor it is because he wants that house to be built because we know from what we've learned earlier that the kings of this times wanted all gods to be happy with them and bring them favor. So Darius is like, build it. So that they may pray to the God of heaven for me and my children. I'm condensing this a lot because there's a lot here. God moves in the heart of the king. Um, God moves in the heart of the president. God moves in the heart of other nations. There is no human being in power today that is in power apart from the providence of God, period. He's not my president. So what? He's not my king. So what? She's not my representative. She is. God placed him there for God's purpose and his reason. I know that's tough in this political atmosphere. Because I know everybody wants to blame everybody for everything else. But here's the situation. So what? If God is in control, what does it matter? Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Penguin, doesn't matter. Okay? So, moving on from there, you see God works wonders his way, how he's moving these things, how he's doing these things behind the scenes. And then at the very end of it, you see what happens when people are being obedient to God. That literally, as these things take place, as the temple is finished, as the people are celebrating, as the, the sacrificial system is being begun again, as 
they're following in the footsteps of all the people that God's called them to do as far as doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. That literally, in verse 19 of chapter 6, it says this, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, which was huge. If you don't know anything about the nation of Israel, if you don't know anything about the Jewish people, they live with two things in mind constantly, every day of their lives. The Holocaust, the exile. The Holocaust, the exile. The Holocaust, the exile. Moshe Katz, who is my instructor uh, in, in Krav that I take, uh, he is from the tribe of Aaron, so he's from the priestly tribe. And so I've been over there and went and sat through a three-hour synagogue service completely in Hebrew. <laughs> um, understood four words. It was great. It was amazing. It's like, hey, I know that word. Um, chew it on Turkish coffee. Have you ever drank Turkish coffee? You don't drink it. You chew it, Okay. So we're all jacked up and we're all in the corner going, oh, oh, oh. so it was great. Um, so through that process, Moshe will talk about, went to the Holocaust Museum, went to a couple of places. Moshe will always say that we, the Jewish people, live with the Holocaust at the forefront of our mind and the Exodus is the next facet of our, of our memory of how we do things. The Holocaust, the Exodus, two major things that happen for all Jewish people. Here, they are celebrating because the exodus, the second exodus is now what? Coming to an end. They have the temple back. They're celebrating. They're worshiping. They're celebrating the Passover. For the priests and Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile, also by everyone who had joined them, separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Salvation takes place here. They separated themselves from the disobedience of their fathers that sent them into exile. An even greater work is taking place here. During the years, God's people were working on building the temple beneath the surface, an even greater work was taking place in the hearts of the surrounding peoples. They were being saved. I know a lot of people don't see the gospel in this, but the gospel is as much a part of this as anything else. When God is at work, man cannot in any way, shape, or form mess that up. And so God is working through this process. For us, I mean, let's kind of bring this to a close. I know this is a lot, but for us, how can you and I walk away from this and kind of put this into the obedience category of our no believe and obey? How can we walk through that process? Well, first, remember that even when we've forgotten God, He hasn't forgotten us. Even when we're in the middle of the complacency of our lives, even when we're kind of sidetracked or we're kind of, you know, hemmed in, and maybe we're doing things on our own and we've forgotten him, he has not forgotten us. I mean, literally, God gave them the decree to build. And, and he didn't forget that. He, he, he keeps his word. He was there in their midst. Moving, shaking, doing the things that God can only do. So even when we forget about God, he hasn't forgotten us. Secondly, and I'm going to say this. I want you to understand this is a military term, so please don't take this the wrong way. Um, how many of you guys are, guys and gals are in the military or forming to go to the military? Okay. Um, if you're in the Marines, if you're in the Army, the Navy, eh, uh, 
I'm sorry. I hang out with a bunch of Marines and Army guys, and they always make fun of the Navy guys, so I just I kind of join in with that. I apologize. If you're in the Navy, rock solid. Um, but there's a terminology that when you're in the midst of the worst part, when you're in the mud, you're in the muck, you're in the mire, they have this terminology that says embrace the suck. Okay? You've got to embrace the suck. There's going to be nasty times. There's going to be things. The Marines say, I can endure anything for 24 hours. That's embracing the suck. So I'm using it in that terminology. In the midst of the suck, he is there. He is aware and he is prepared. Ha! Got a little rhyme in it on that one, didn't I? Uh, okay. So, even in the midst of the muck and the mire, the worst, the jake, the suck, he's there, he's aware, he's prepared. You're not alone. Guys, I've worked at Home Depot for two years. Home Depot. Okay. Love it. My passion is ministry. Not gardening, okay? But for two years, I've worked there, and I've done my best. I've knuckled down, buckled down, do it. God is not mistaken having me at Home Depot. There are people I get to minister to there all the time. But I have to be aware of what's going on around me. I can't just be in this category. I've got to understand it in the midst of the things that may not be the best for me, may not be the best for my family. God is still there. He knows what's going on, and he's preparing what he wants me to do. I just got to trust him. So in the midst of it, he's there, aware and prepared. And lastly, and this is kind of the key for this. As God reveals, we should respond obediently. If 16 years ago they'd have done what God said, it wouldn't have been 16 years, would it? I know my English is horrible, but I'm, I'm fired up, okay? 16 years ago, it would have been built. They'd have been living in the middle of God's blessing, His presence being with them. Everything would have been great, and whatever, blah, 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 blah. But they didn't. They disobeyed because of fear. Fear crept in and they said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to back away. And for 16 years, the temple set. The place where God's presence was supposed to be just sat empty. And what happened to the people's lives? They were just as empty as that temple. What about you and I? When we're disobedient, it's not like God's going to go, I ain't dealing with you no more. Uh-uh, lightning strike. It's not going to happen like that. God's going to honor that and say, if you don't want to be obedient, okay. But don't expect me to show up and bless you if you're going to do what you want to do. You're saying to me that you want to be God. God will honor that. Go right ahead. Now I'll watch over you. I'll be with you. I'll be in that place. But don't expect all the blessings that are going to come. When God reveals, it is our job, ladies and gentlemen, as followers of Jesus Christ, to be obedient to that call. He doesn't reveal for the fun of it. God's revelation is directly contacted to our obedience to that revelation. So from this, as he reveals, we should respond obediently. And lastly, the reason for our obedience is not to get God's blessing. I won't go, oh gosh, don't get me started on some of this heresy junk that's in the church. We are called to be obedient 
because he is God and God alone, period. But when we are obedient, an amazing thing happens. God blesses. His blessing may not be monetary. It may, may, it may not be that the relationship that you've been looking for. Oh, he'll say, hey to me. No, it's not of that. The blessing is his presence in your life. The blessing is him, not his stuff. Please don't miss that. The joy that came from the nation of Israel was that God was there again. He was present. Because ultimately that's what they wanted, was his presence. Here's the question. As we get ready to enter to a time of communion, where we now follow in the obedience, what is it that you want most from God? His stuff or himself? Because, friends, don't get me wrong. Please understand, this book is not about building a building. This book is about God's presence among God's people to fulfill God's purposes. Let me say that again. God's presence among God's people to fulfill God's purpose. That's the focus. And we need to be focused on ourselves. As we take this to heart... And we come to the communion table remembering what God has done for us, not built a stupid building. But he's built a tabernacle where? In each one of us, as we are ushered into his presence, as he reaches down to save each and every one of us, he initiates the work of salvation. This is what we're to remember as we do communion. I say to my boys and my family each time, as we come to the table, remember what he has done for you. That's why we take communion. It's our obedience in that process. What do you want from God? Because if you're after God for his stuff, bless your heart. And we all know what that's southern for. Say it out loud. You stupid, okay? When we chase after him, it's not about his stuff, it's about him. So as we come to the table, let's remember that today. Let's pray. Father, I know a lot of times things get jumbled up. I know a lot of times we get involved with our lives and we get so focused on what's going on around us, we fail to recognize your presence. We fail to be obedient. We fail to know you better. And Father, that's sin. It's sin full and full bore because it's us wanting to be the center of the world, not realizing and not understanding that we're not. As the people came before you and repented of their disobedience and you brought them out of exile and told them to build the temple and, and they began it, but as soon as troubles came up, they kind of backed away from it and, and said, oh no, we're, not, you know, we're, we're scared and all of this stuff. Father, you never left them. You never left them alone. You 
you were working and moving. And Father, all of these things, we, we look at it from as an old historical story, but it's the same thing that's going on today. We are as discontent, we are as discombobulated, we are out of sorts. And Father, a lot of times because our priorities are completely out of whack. Bring us back into a right sense of priority. Father, let your word wash over us like a wave, like water that cleanses. It gives us proper perspective and understanding of what you desire. If we don't know you, Father, let us not be religious junk. Because religion is man's way to appease an angry God. You're not angry, you're just right. It's not religion that saves, it's relationship. Father, let us realize that you desire that relationship with us. And Father, build a temple in us where your Holy Spirit, your presence resides. And when you call, when you reveal, we respond obediently. Bless this time as we come to the table. May we remember what you've done. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.